is another full episode of one of our favorite podcasts, Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio, hosted by David Rothkop, produces new episodes two to three times per week and brings together top experts, policymakers, and journalists from the national security, foreign policy, and political communities. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you become a member of the DSR Network, you'll receive benefits such as ad-free listening via private feed, discounts to virtual events, and Deep State Radio swag, and access to the member-only Slack community. This is one of the most closely followed podcasts among the people influencing the most important decisions in Washington and worldwide today. You can learn more by visiting thedsrnetwork.com. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City, and we are joined today in Washington, D.C., uh, by a new guest who has not been with us before, three-time Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, Barton Gelman. How are you, Bart? Nice of you to join us. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm, I'm in New York, by the way. Oh, you're in New York as well. Well, see, it feels very cozy. And in Washington, D.C., we have with us um, Ed Luce of the Financial Times, as usual. How are you, Ed? I'm good. Thank you, David. And in Alexandria, Virginia, we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. Hi, Rosa. How are you? Hi, David. I'm I'm very well, thank you. And I'm very excited uh, about the presidential debate tonight. Um, I'm getting my popcorn ready now. Are you? Are you really? Um, do you have a drinking game that you're planning on? You know, every time Donald Trump speaks in the first person, you'll be dead within five minutes. Actually, I was getting a few stiff drinks kind of lined up in shot glasses. Uh. Um, all right. So, you know, uh, I, I wanted to have a conversation that picks up on many that we've had here because of uh, Rose's participation largely every week and uh, turns to a story that uh, appeared last week in, in the Atlantic, but is actually from the November print edition of The Atlantic, and they moved it up, uh, which Bart wrote, which is called The Election That Could Break America, um, which talks about uh, how the election process could go off the rails. Uh, it is, uh, I think, the best um, of the stories that uh, I have seen on this topic, uh, other than, of course, the, the pieces that uh, Rosa herself has written. Um, but but let me read out just one paragraph of it and, and then turn to you, Bart, with the first question. He was just trying to butter up Bart, by the way. 
David, David was just trying to butter me up when he said, other than the pieces Rosa has written, because I actually only wrote one piece and it wasn't nearly as good as yours. So David, David's just trying to see if he can get on my good side because he's, he knows that I actually lead a battalion of insurrectionists. So he wants to stay in my good graces. Yeah, no, I've been getting the weekly, um, the, the weekly newsletters from the far, the far right about the civil war that will be led by Rosa. Um, the, but 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 you're right, in, in a, and I think one of the sort of key paragraphs of the piece, the worst case, however, is not that Trump rejects the election outcome. The worst case is that he uses his power to prevent a decisive outcome against him. And then you go through and in a very meticulously reported way, describe how the president could make it harder for people to vote and that, in fact, there was a, a, a substantial army of people waiting to help do that, um, that he could impede things as as the post office has sought to do, um, that there were channels uh, post-election for states to uh, reclaim the prerogative if, if results seemed um, or at least could be claimed to be dubious. Um, and that via this process, um, all chaos could 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 break loose. And, and I think the piece has had a, a very strong impact of focusing people's attention on it. Since then, the president's tax returns have come out, uh, and the odds seem to um, be growing as we're now just about to enter October. Um, against the president. Do you think, based on the research that you've done, that this makes Trump more dangerous and these scenarios more likely? Anything that threatens Trump makes him more dangerous. He's, uh, he's a very dangerous man, and he is not prepared to lose. And when I say prepared, I don't mean that he's not ready for it. I, I mean he's not willing. Uh, he is not going to concede the election. Uh, no matter what the vote is. Uh, and if you take that proposition seriously, and I believe that it's something you can take to the bank, uh, then it has cascading effects uh, for election day and afterward. Uh, the conceit of my piece was to uh, examine a period I call the interregnum from the election day to inauguration, which is 79 days. And it's full of milestones that normally we pay no attention to and don't even notice because they're formalities, but they may not be this year. Uh, and that's just, that's the casting of the electoral votes uh, and it's the uh, formal counting of electoral votes in January uh, by a joint session of Congress. Uh, Trump, once he decides that the election results are not to his liking uh, and, and he's already laid the foundations for that attack, uh, has a lot of things he can do to mess things up. And if, if he's not restrained by the normal restraints, and we all understand that that's the case here, he's not restrained, uh, he could do a hell of a lot of damage. No no doubt that's the case. I thought what I would do, uh, if it's okay with you, Rosa and Ed, is turn to each of you for a comment you may have on the article and then a question you might have for Bart, and then we'll get into a round table discussion. So, but let me let me start with you, Rosie. You're you're quoted in the article, um, and uh, you know I, it's one of the more provocative places in the article because you're saying you know you've studied this thing, and in your study of what could happen, uh, in the instances where you ended up with you know conflict in the streets, 
you essentially stopped because you didn't know where it went then. Uh, have you considered that further? And do you have a question uh, for Bart? Yeah, I mean, I, I have thought about a lot. And, and Ed obviously was part of uh, one, two exercises. I can't remember. Um, Only one, unfortunately. But I, I hope you're going to have some more. But I see you you might not be. No, I think I'm I'm retiring from the uh, <laughs> uh, election-related wargaming business. Too soon, too soon. <laughs> um, you know, we there are a couple of reasons, and I think I was saying to this to Bart when when we spoke um, earlier that we didn't play out what would happen um, with sort of people out in the streets and so on. You know, one was just that we didn't really have the right group of assembled experts. Um, um, you know, we had a bunch of journalists, political campaign strategists, and I don't think any of those folks have any special insight into, into movement politics and protest politics. Um, so I, I don't think it was the right group to try to think that through, or for that matter, into the rise, breadth, and spread of uh, far-right militia groups and so forth. So we didn't have the right expertise. But the other reason is, is that the goal of the exercises we did was to think about possible things that could go wrong with a view towards what could be done to prevent them from going wrong. And in order to come up with any of those insights, you don't need to start talking about exactly how bad things could get. Once they get to the threshold of badness that you're like, oh boy, that would be bad, let's prevent it it's sort of just masochistic to to keep speculating about exactly how horrifically awful things could get because you're already way past the point where you think, you know, we don't, it would be terrible if it ever got that far. I, I think that um, my question for, for you, Bart, um, and you talk to a lot of, a lot of people for that terrific piece. Um, you know, we, in our exercises, I certainly didn't feel like we identified any, any, sort of silver bullet, you know, oh, just do this, this one neat trick to safeguard American democracy. You know, for us, it was, it was identifying, felt like there were lots of little things, any one of which on the margins, all of which cumulatively could make a difference. But I wonder when you, when you talk to people, did you meet any optimists? Did you meet anybody? Did you talk to anybody who felt like, you know, here are the, you know, the, the three neat tricks, uh, uh, that could save American democracy. And I wonder whether I'm piling a second question on, I keep being asked, you know, what are, what are the odds that things really go off the rails? And I keep answering, I have no idea, um, higher than I would like, but where are the, you know, I, exactly where I don't know. And I wonder whether you came away from your reporting with a sense of, you know, if, if you had to decide whether to buy your bunker tomorrow uh, or, or move to Canada tomorrow versus, uh, you know, uh, invest big in, in American stocks and bonds, which, which did it leave you thinking you should choose? I'm not a move to Canada kind of guy. Uh, if things go bad, I want to be here to see it and, 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 uh, and write about it and understand what's going on. But, uh, I'm, I'm not especially optimistic. I, I think that Trump has a lot of mischief in him uh, and he has a lot of power to exert mischief, uh, to work mischief on this election. Uh, so I, I did not run into a lot of optimists, but one of them 
uh, in a way, was my editor. Uh, I, I I wrote the piece differently than I have ever written anything. Uh, and one of the things that makes it different is that at the end of it, I sort of turn the camera straight to the reader and talk to the reader in the second person and say, you know, if you can go vote in person. Uh, and, and, I, and I then go through a whole list of things that you should do if you have different roles in the election. That's completely unlike any of the journalism I've ever done. And I felt moved to do it because my editor said, well, is there nothing <laughs> that can be done here? I mean, are we all gonna have to sit back and wait for this disaster to happen. And I think actually that forewarned is forearmed that if you are expecting this to be a normal election, you could be caught off guard by all kinds of sucker punches and, and it will slow our reflexes. If we're, if we're thinking about when does Florida come in and when are we gonna hear the returns from the West Coast and uh, what do the polls say about it? it the normal election things are not going to be all that's going on. Uh, the president is going to be attacking the very foundation of vote counting. He's going to be asking the vote count be stopped. He's going to be delegitimating the vote count. He's going to be uh, moving some of the, of the people and processes that he has control over uh, to influence those things. I, I would not be surprised. I would be shocked and horrified, but I would not be surprised if federal personnel are sent to post offices uh, to to uh, temporarily seize ballots that are there as evidence in an international incident of of uh, global forgery that he that that someone in his intelligence community uh, tells him is happening. Uh, I think that William Barr uh, is capable of finding authority for him to do all kinds of things that would seem on first blush to be unlawful. I mean, you, the, the law says you can't have armed services folks with weapons anywhere near polls for any reason other than to repel a foreign invasion. Uh, will Barr find an exception for that? Uh, we don't know, but I, 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 think, I think we need each to be ready for something that is extra constitutional and think about what our role could be if that happens. And I'd like to ask a question before, Ed, um, that picks up on Rose's question about likelihood. Um, some of the things you talk about, you describe uh, in, in language that makes it sound as though you're fairly certain they will happen at any event, some things less certain. What are you fairly certain that the Trump team will do? I'm fairly certain that uh, there will be uh, active voter suppression on election day uh, to prevent people from getting to the polls. Uh, and to, uh, I, you know, I've become aware since I wrote the piece of a couple of alarming signals that I will be writing about soon, I hope. Uh, but I, I, I'm, I'm fairly certain that because this is the first election in 40 years uh, in which there is no judicial oversight of what the Republicans can do for quote-unquote ballot security, that there will be uh, large and intimidating presences in uh, big cities, in swing states, that will scare Democratic voters away from the polls as best they can. Uh, I am certain that uh, there will be uh, Republican lawyers. There are volunteer lawyers in the thousands around the country in many, many, many counties uh, who will be uh, trying to 
disqualify the mail-in vote to stop the counting, uh, to uh, to challenge each ballot one by one, uh, to keep it going longer. Because Trump's game plan is that is is to say, as he has already been saying, uh, that election night votes are legitimate votes. Election night count is a legitimate count, and after that, uh, it's fake. It's 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 forgery. I I am a little less sure, but I will not be at all surprised if uh, Trump tries to persuade allies in state legislators uh, to appoint Trump electors directly rather than have them appointed as a result of the vote. If you can convince the public that the vote's been poisoned by fraud, then they've got no choice, you'll be able to say, than to appoint electors directly. Uh, that is a power they have under the, under the Constitution, uh, and it's something I know that the Trump campaign is thinking about. Ed? Um, oh, well, I too found it a, a really impressive and highly instructive and deeply alarming piece. Um, and I was impressed by your switching to the second person and saying vote in person, um, the logic of which is, you know, very compelling. Um, I am surprised there isn't a little bit more of that from from the Democratic Party. That for those who, you know, have the time or a good enough employer to take the full day off, join a queue outside, socially distance, wear a mask, but vote in person. I, I know there's been some of that. I would expect there to have been more, given all the risks we're aware of. Um, the the questions I had, I've got two questions for you. One um, is is you might have just trailed it a little bit is whether you got a sense in the research um, you were doing for this piece of what kind of scale we're talking about when, when we look at the restraints being off the Republican Party about having their own ballot security, that, about having their own people at polling stations, um, and you know, mindful of the various paramilitaries there are on the right, which has been quite well documented, whether you've got any idea of what kind of scale of election security, inverted commas, um, we, should, we should be preparing for, um, first of all. And second, the other question was about the Supreme Court. Um, I was having got a long conversation earlier today with Jeff Rosen, who is, I'm sure you know, is head of the Constitutional Center in Philadelphia. Um, and he was saying that he felt, even if it was a 6-3, Supreme Court, um, that the court would um, try and do everything possible to avoid what happened in 2000, where, where of course, it accepted the appeal uh, when it could have rejected it and voted 5-4 to close the count, um, that it would do everything for self-preservation reasons to um, avoid being put in that position again. Um, and of course, it doesn't have to take any case. It can pick and choose. And election law is settled at the state level. Um, did you did you talk through any scenarios that were different to that um, in terms of the role of the Supreme Court? So that's really interesting. The uh, Supreme Court, uh, it doesn't come in right away, uh, regardless. As you said, state, state and local law generally control on election. Election law is local law. Uh, but there's a point at which you, you, if there are competing slates of electors from different states, if the people of Pennsylvania uh, vote uh, for Biden, let's just say, uh, and Trump disputes the count, and the count is not final because it's still in litigation, 
and Trump convinces the state legislature to appoint Trump electors. Now you've got Trump electors and Biden electors both heading towards December 14th, uh, each purporting to represent the state of Pennsylvania's 20 electoral votes and casting them in opposite directions. Uh, what counts? Who, who, whose count? Congress has given itself the power to decide that in the Electoral Count Act. But so that, now we're into federal law and federal law being interpreted. There are a number of scenarios that I write about in which if Congress is still split uh, with a, a Republican Senate and a Democratic House, uh, then Congress can deadlock on deciding whose electoral votes count. And then you could imagine the Supreme Court feeling pressure to get in because there would be actually no answer to the question, who is the president-elect? Uh, I My instinct is that the court will be very reluctant. Uh, I think that, that uh, people on the left who think the Supreme Court is uh, licking its chops and can't wait to jump in and, uh, and, and, and elect Trump president again, I, I, I strongly doubt that. I think the court's legitimacy uh, will be very much at risk if it settles another election. If it settles one uh, in favor of the incumbent who appointed three of its members uh, and asked them in advance to elect him, uh, it, it, it's a huge problem for the court. And I, I, I think it will not be eager to jump into that. I agree with that. But couldn't it, um, couldn't it just say, look, that's, that's an issue. If it's a Pennsylvania competing state, whichever state it is, um, that's, that's an issue for the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. It could do. And, and no, I, 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 my instinct is, is similar to Jeff Rosen's instinct and to what Bart just said. I, I think the, I think that almost all of the justices, including most likely Amy Coney Barrett, if she is confirmed, will try hard not to become the deciders because the Bush v. Gore decision in 2000 was really devastating for uh, public confidence in the court. Um, and I, I think that enough of justices are institutionalists who don't want to see the court viewed as a partisan institution that they will try their best to stay out of it. I, I, I agree that there are scenarios in which they might feel that they just can't stay out of it anymore, or they might, they might get involved in a way that preserves the appearance of staying out of it while actually you know, leaving us with a decision that tilts in in, in a Trumpward direction. Um, but but I my guess is that to me that doesn't seem the the Supreme Court deciding on the merits, decide making a substantive ruling on the merits that tips the election seems to me like a relatively unlikely outcome. Not impossible, but unlikely. Well, let me pose a question to Barton and, and sort of move into some other uh, elements of the scenario. Um, one of the things we've learned about living in the Trump era is the the power of this thing that I refer to sometimes as the fog of Trump. There's one crisis, it's followed by another crisis, it's followed by another crisis, and by the third or fourth crisis, you forgot the first crisis. And so it provides him with cover, and it enables him to, you know, get, get away with, you know, things. You know, Wilbur Ross right now is saying, I'm not going to listen to the court about the census. Well, people have taxes to worry about, and they've got your story, and they've got the debate, and they've got everything else, and they're not focused on the fact that this could be this devastating corruption of the census process. And so 
the odds that he gets away with it go up somewhat. Well, in this particular case, of course, there are 50 states involved in this election. Um, and if, you know, there's some voter suppression and there's some problems at the post office and then there's some questions about counting in some states and there's four instances of uh, uh, ballot fraud that are cooked up or not cooked up and there's two instances of foreign intervention that are cooked up or not, how is anybody going to pay any attention to that? I'm wondering if in your exploration of these scenarios, there look like there are a couple of pressure points that are most important, a couple of states or issues that this is going to come down to, a couple of ways to cut through 40 competing stories that undercut the legitimacy of this election or not. If that, is that the strategy and there's no way around it? You know, he, he, he is the chaos candidate. He is someone who creates this extraordinary turmoil and fog that you're talking about, and he benefits from it. And I don't think anybody's got an answer for how uh, normal institutions can react to that. It's the same problem that Joe Biden has uh, as he walks into the debate that's coming later tonight after our recording. Uh, how do you respond if someone uh, makes seven outrageous claims and 13 lies in, in, in one answer? Uh, how do you respond to that? I, I'm not sure how you cut through to the core on this. And I'm not saying that what I wrote about is the most important uh, fact about the election. I, 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 think, I think the fact that Trump won't concede, that he has a great deal of of uh, has, has many options and many tools in his toolbox to disrupt things is something we need to pay attention to. Um, I would, I would hope that um, reporters are asking state legislators all over, as some of them are, uh, whether they're prepared to consider appointing electors directly in, in conflict with what uh, the state's voters have chosen. Because if they commit themselves ahead of time not to, that's already a considerable amount of progress. I think the trouble with that, and here's what worries me, is is that their answer would be, of course, we would never appoint electors in in contradiction to what the voters have chosen. But if it appears that fraud has led to a supposed vote count that does not actually represent the will of the voters of my wonderful state, of course, it would be my profound obligation to appoint a slate of electors that reflects the actual will of the people, which is telepathically known to me uh, and is very different from that supposed ballot count, which you know could not have been reached but for fraud. That, that's my fear. And that, that that's my fear that, that why those forms of, of pre-commitment are less meaningful this year than they would otherwise be. I, I mean, to me, I, I, this is not a this is not a um, uplifting comment, but I was thinking about, um, there was some report that the World Bank did a decade or so ago now, I think it was in 2009, where they looked at um, how long it took countries to collapse and how long it took them to piece things back together on various metrics, rule of law, uh, anti-poverty metrics, human rights, you name it. Um, and the depressing answer is that collapse is easy and fast and restoration of rule of law principles, et cetera. You know, and I think the average was like 47 years or something like that, you know, that, that, that rebuilding and restoration and sort of building up strong pro-democratic norms is the, is the work of 
several generations, but knocking things down is is quick and easy work. And and I, I my biggest fear is that we are seeing that right before our eyes unfolding in this country. Yeah, Bart, you may not know this because you may not listen to our podcasts every week, but Rosa is known as the permanent holder of the thorny crown of entropy because she can look at, you know, any silver lining and find the cloud around it. Um, but uh, uh, l- let me let me pose a question to Ed and let's turn this into a, a question for all of you. Um, the, the, the big story for the past few days has been Trump's taxes and the stories, remarkably reported stories coming out of the New York Times um, that seem to indicate um, uh, at least red flags in terms of potential fraud uh, and abuse uh, by Trump over many, many years. This, you know, echoes a story that they did a couple of years ago that said the same kind of thing. Um, and, you know, it also, by the way, and, and I don't think this is, you know, covered sufficiently, but, you know, he owes apparently $421 million, $300 million coming due in the course of the next four years. Um, we don't know to whom he owes that. Um, and it, you know, take that money and take that $100 million uh, uh, decision that may go against him in the IRS, and he could be in a very precarious place in the second term. And that could bring us right back to who owes the money. Is it Russia? What, you know, how is the president compromised? And, and you get a president who's in a pretty desperate place. Ed, you know, I mean, losing this election for him is not, you know, going off to, you know, Florida and improving his golf game. He could go bankrupt. He could go to jail. His kids could go to jail. His company could disappear. Everything that he's built is in jeopardy. Uh, And so to me, that potentially raises the stakes for him in, in all of this. And by the way, there are some significant incentives for those who helped him get where he did, like the Russians, uh, to, you know, do it again. Do, do you feel all this, everything that's unfolding, makes the situation that much more dangerous, Ed, and then we'll go around? I, I do. I mean, I think it makes us aware of what's in Trump's head, because I assume all of Trump was already aware of the fact that he owes $421 million and that if he loses the presidency, the Cy Vance's of this world are going to um, are going to be that much closer to prosecuting him. So, I, I mean, I think our awareness of Trump's predicament and sort of deep existential incentive to be reelected is now dramatically, ra- well, considerably raised by this excellent um, New York Times um, report. I mean, clearly, um, there is a, a um, immunity, personal immunity, while you're while you're the sitting president. Um, and you know, Robert Mueller thought that too. Um, and um, Trump um, clearly thinks that uh, another four years can help him. You know, um, keep keep the savances at bay, but also keep the debt collectors at bay. We don't know who he owes this money to. Um, we can have some pretty good guesses um, and we can hope that some of that information is going to leak out in time. Um, but another four years for Trump is um, 
very, very different proposition to another four years for any previous incumbent running for re-election in American political history. There's just nothing like this. Um, there is a kind of irony, um, a bitter irony um, to, to all of this. He clearly ran in 2015 to help reflate his name and his brand and monetize it, as the report, reporting from the New York Times has shown so well. Um, didn't expect to win, has won, um, and now, of course, has a deep, deep um, existential incentive to win again uh, in, in order to keep the wolves from his, his door. Um, I just don't think that that's new to him. It's, you know, it, it, we're better informed about the parlous, um, perhaps bankrupt state of his finances. I, I think he, I presume he is pretty aware of it already. Bart, I'd be interested in what you think of that. And just to add on to it, not that it wasn't an extremely long and complicated question to begin with, but it seems to me that if Trump does what you describe, one of the main occupations of his second term will be, much as the main occupation of his first term was obstructing justice around Russia, will be obstructing justice around the way he won this election. In other words, if you win by dubious means, then what you have to do is clamp down anything that might eat away at your legitimacy, which makes the next four years loom as, you know, sort of more authoritarian and more contemptuous of the rule of law than even the last four years. I mean, if Trump uh, holds on to power um, extra constitutionally, if he somehow to the Electoral College, manipulate the press the, uh, Congress, uh, cut short the counting and have the Supreme Court bless that in some way, uh, then he's going to be, he's going to have, a, he's going to have a problem of, uh, of insurrection. He's going to have a problem of uh, more than half of the country, uh, maybe not being willing to accept the results. Uh, and you know, some of Rosa's scenarios had him calling out the Insurrection Act and, and bringing active duty armed forces um, into American cities. Uh, he, he could be in the dystopic version of this, uh, of this whole thing uh, if we're not there already. He's prosecuting uh, political opposition uh, who are calling his election illegitimate. I wonder though, I mean, so in the scenarios we did, Trump wasn't calling, wasn't uh, invoking the Insurrection Act because there was an insurrection. He was invoking the Insurrection Act uh, on pretextual grounds, uh, you know, similar to the uh, argument for I must send federal agents to Portland. I must, I must have federalized National Guard troops in Lafayette Square. Um, but I do think that one of the one of the one of the many potential risks this country faces. Um, is that if Trump wins and is perceived as having perceived by the majority of Americans who seem to support Joe Biden um, as having won through dirty tricks, uh, that I, I, I do, I, I, I can't imagine an actual insurrection from the left, notwithstanding the sort of feverish arguments from the far right, frankly, is the left is just not organized enough to get an insurrection going <laughs> and never has been. Um, and the left, unlike the right, is not armed and does not tend to smile upon guns and violence. Um, 
Uh, you know, you always have fringe elements who do, but but by and large, the neither the Democratic Party nor even its its far left base is, I think, remotely contemplating actual insurrection. But what I do think is a risk, um, not probably immediately, but sort of over over the next four years, is is you know a real kind of crisis of governance and crisis of legitimacy in which you will see more and more states such as California or New York essentially saying no you know you can take us to court all you want but we regard this we regard the dictates of the executive branch as so fundamentally illegitimate that you we're not going to do it um and i don't know how that plays out over time um i you know i, I frankly i also see an equal and opposite danger um, in fact, a greater danger, a different type of danger on the right, even if Biden wins in a landslide, I think, I think there will be governance challenges for Biden because you will have, in this, in this case, a minority rather than a majority, but a minority that, that feels that it has been shut out and disenfranchised, that believes the Trump claims of vote, vote fraud and the mail-in ballots and so forth. And that is a minority, but it is actually an armed minority that already has at least subgroups that are organized uh, uh, armed and organized, as opposed to the left, which has uh, unarmed and largely disorganized groups. Um, and, and I think that I, I, it's very hard to see an outcome of this election, um, even if there is a very clear result, whether the clear result is a Trump victory or a crystal clear Biden landslide, that doesn't still create real governance problems down the road. Uh, that I, I don't, I, and I worry about, I, I do worry about that very much. I mean, I worry about that even, even if there's a Biden landslide victory, you still end up having all kinds of difficulties governing, you know, even if the Democrats take the Senate as well as the House. Um, and I, I think one of the, you know, if I can just add one more little depressing note to this conversation, um, the, the Trump base is a minority of the country. Um, and I think that the really hardcore, really crazy, you know, I'm prepared to take up arms. Trump faces a tiny minority of the country. But I also think that when you look cross-culturally, when you look at other countries, when you look at places where things have fallen apart, you don't actually need a, a majority or even a plurality of the country uh, to really make things go off the rails. You just, you, you can have a pretty tiny group and even, you know, terrorist groups, you know, ISIS, insurgencies, Al-Qaeda, you know, really probably never had the support of more than a tiny fraction of the populations that they operated within. But if you have a sufficiently ruthless, well-armed and one well-funded group, it can be tiny, but it can still cause tremendous damage in a pretty short time. Well, you know, the, the, uh, the, the militias are filled with people who pride themselves on being in the tiny minority. Uh, you've probably heard the expression, the three percenters, that they have this mythological belief that only 3% of the American colonists fought the British uh, and won the revolution. Uh, it's bad history, but it's, uh, it's part of their self-image that uh, they're the ones who will stand up when no one else will. You know, just as a, as a footnote, before I get to the last question, one of the things that strikes me in listening to what Rosa is saying uh, and going back to I brought up the example of the Commerce Department and the census, but we can think of dozens of other examples, is this kind of rejection of, of norms and this kind of quiet coup that's already happened where people on the right say, well, I'm not going to honor a 
congressional subpoena. Let's see what you can do about that. Or I'm not going to honor the decision of the court. Let's see what you can do about that. Or we're not going to listen to what the, you know, CDC says, or we're going to repress, you know, and, and so what happens over time is a lot of the, the, the norms on which we counted uh, and some of the laws in which we counted cease being used. And if there is after Trump, a kind of a hangover of Republicans who feel that this is now a legitimate means of politics to simply ignore the law, um, then it makes Rosa's scenario that much more likely. Um, now, what I'd like to do, because we only have a couple minutes left, is go to each of you, and I'm going to start with Ed uh, and then Bart and then Rosa. I'd like to get your sense based on all the reporting that you've done, people you've spoken to and, and, and thinking you've done on this subject, of what for, for you are the red flashing lights that you look for, whether it's in the run-up to the election, election night, the day after the election, that, that, that our listeners should say, oh, this is going off the rails. This is, this is heading in the dangerous direction. And I'll start with you, Ed, then go to Bart, then Rosa. I mean, there are a lot of potential red flashing lights, um, but uh, I, I'm I'm not sure I'm going to be particularly original in in, in picking them out. Um, I think that the obvious one is um, you know how the president speaks about it. I've no I've no doubt that he will um, you know in the debates continue to refuse to guarantee a peaceful transfer of power. And I guess my sort of biggest red flashing light is how many people that doesn't outrage. Um, uh, how, how few Republicans are prepared to, to speak up. Some did last time because that was the most explicit he'd ever been, but not nearly enough. You know, having Mitt Romney issue a statement um, or a tweet is, is, is not that reassuring. Uh, you, need, you need to see um, the preponderance of opinion on the right saying that this is going too far. And... Uh, I, I I find that to be a sort of constant flashing red light. I just sort of want to pick up one thing uh, that Rosa was saying about the World Bank report that countries can collapse quickly but take decades to rebuild. I think that's, I'm going to look up that report because I think it's a very valuable one. But I, I'd say countries can also um, take a long time to degenerate. Um, and I've been for years really sort of concerned about the decline the constant what what scholars in your field roads are called constitutional rot it's not a constitutional crisis it's the rot of norms um the erosion of norms of governance governance um the rise of contempt for people doing public sector public service jobs um and for the public square and that i still think in spite of the flashing red lights is America's greatest, greatest challenge. It's not, it's, it's, it's not something, it's not Trump doing a sort of house of cards after the election and getting away with it, although I think that is a very real risk. It's the contempt that a Biden administration will be treated with and the veto that the minority will try and put on him and the continuing growth of frustration in, in politics and democracy amongst the population at large. That, that is still, to my mind, in spite of everything we've been talking about, the greater danger. Thanks. I think it's a good point. And I'm pretty sure that nobody uh, among the four of us who are listening to this podcast will ever write a book called The Mitt Romney Tweet That Saved America. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> Bart. <laughs> uh, I think that we're already in the prelude to a democratic emergency. Uh, the fact that the president um, has stated that he cannot lose the coming election unless it is rigged, that any legitimate outcome uh, will keep him president, uh, that there will be no transfer of power, but a continuation. Um, those are all things he said recently. Uh, that's an emergency. Uh, that's a delegitimation of the very idea of voting. Uh, what will be the flashing red light for me was when he, is when he puts words into action, uh, when you start to see things actually happen um, on election day or thereafter. If he has, uh, if he does anything, which causes the vote, the vote or the vote counting to stop. Uh, if he is able to interfere with the transmission of postal ballots, uh, if 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 uh, if ballots are seized as evidence, quote unquote, because of a fraud investigation uh, that is headed by the attorney general, or a national security investigation uh, that is headed. Um, inside the intelligence community, uh, the, th then we'll know that the words are real and that they mean something and, and uh, we'll be in deep trouble. Rosa? Well, I guess I would nominate two things. Um, one would be, and, and this is something I don't know how to do, but there are people who specialize in this. One would be the sort of chatter in, in far-right social media universes. Um, you know, we, we've seen things like the, uh, you know, what happened in Kenosha, that kind of violence was not spontaneous, right? That there was an organized effort to get armed right-wing troops there, troops, not official troops, but self-appointed vigilante troops there. Um, I think that, I think that those who specialize in this kind of stuff need to be really flagging it and, and publicizing it to the extent that they're seeing organized efforts to have armed people at the polls, um, organized efforts to have armed people, you know, armed vigilantes in front of places where ballots are being counted, you know, for organized doxing efforts aimed at uh, electors who may be pledged to Biden or aimed at people counting the votes. You know, I, that I think that kind of tracking the signs of plans for violence and intimidation is, is going to be really, really important. Um, and I, you know, obviously there are organizations as well as, as well as in theory, the FBI who do exactly that. Um, the other thing, and there was another thing. Oh yeah. I remember what the other thing is, um, you know, is, uh, worry, well, worry about the degree to which Trump continues. And this is just repeating something that Ed said, continues to say, uh, things I could only lose if the other side cheats and, and, you know, that's something the international crisis group, uh, which which studies and monitors political violence worldwide and has not previously felt the need to look here at the United States, um, recently stood up a, a, a team to look at the prospects of political violence around the U.S. election. And, you know, in response to a tweet, some tweet that I sent earlier today, Rob Malley, the, the head of the international crisis group, noted that when it comes to their efforts to, he said, he said, our work on election related unrest and violence around the world finds that one important warning sign is when one side is convinced the only way they can lose is if the other side cheats. And, you know, I think we, we're seeing that already. It is not impossible that there could be enough pressure put by conceivably, I'm not terribly optimistic, but by, by other Republicans on Trump to, to say, yes, my opponent could win. 
and that could happen. And if he wins, of course, I will concede. Um, but this rhetoric that says there's no possible way I lose unless they cheated, if that continues and gets more inflammatory, that is pretty, pretty worrying. Indeed, indeed it is. And I think, you know, listening to all of this, we can already see some signs that uh, the, the red flags that, that Bart was talking about are taking place. You have cases where the attorney general is identifying a minor incident of questionable dis- disposition of some ballots in, in Pennsylvania as a larger issue, briefing the president. These, you know, the, the post office has, has, has done what the post office has done. We're already seeing challenges in the court. Uh, this is not a theory. This is not a drill. This is, as, as Bart says, and as Rosa has said, week in and week out, a democratic emergency for the country, which is going to require the participation of everybody, the vigilance of everybody, uh, in order to counteract it, which is why I think it was strong part of your piece to end in the second person. It's why we will end in second person here. You've got to listen to this stuff, and then you've got to act on it, uh, particularly people who listen to a podcast like this who are especially informed and especially um, active. Uh, in in the interim, we want to thank uh, our participants today. Well, thank you, Bart. Congratulations on a terrific piece. I uh, want to thank you, Rosa. You have really played a central role uh, on, on, on all of this. And although we've been doing these podcasts together for five years, um, very proud uh, to see that and, and very pleased to see that they are taking root. Uh, uh, and I want to thank you, Ed, for participating in those things. You've got to read what Bart's coming up. You've got to read what Ed's coming up. And presumably, uh, Rosa, too, will be active uh, in the media. Follow them all. Uh, for more about what we've got coming up, go to the DSRnetwork.com. And if you feel so inclined, click on member, become a member. Uh, for now, thank you very much and uh, stay healthy, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio, hosted by David Rothkopf, produces new episodes two to three times per week and brings together top experts, policymakers, and journalists from the national security, foreign policy, and political communities. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you become a member of the DSR Network, you'll receive benefits such as ad-free listening via private feed, discounts to virtual events, and Deep State Radio swag, and access to the member-only Slack community. This is one of the most closely followed podcasts among the people influencing the most important decisions in Washington and worldwide today. You can learn more by visiting the DSRnetwork.com. 